Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guests this week are Glenn Schloss and Eric Blicker from the award-winning audio production company Flavor Lab. First of all, let's talk about something that's really hot in music right now, and that's NFTs. Musicians and owners of music royalty streams are looking to capitalize on NFTs, which stands for non-fungible tokens. These can be used for artwork or tickets or music or trading cards or any kind of assets that are unique, but they're not easily exchanged. They're paid for by a cryptocurrency like Ethereum. Now, even though these are so hot, there's only a few musicians, artists, bands that have tried to capitalize on this. Kings of Leon, for instance, have a new album that's an NFT. Portugal Demand, Sean Mendes, Grimes, Mike Shinoda have also come out with NFTs, but they have more to do with the artwork than they do with the music. So that being said, there are five things that you have to worry about if you're thinking about an NFT for your music or art or whatever. First of all, you need the proper approvals from any creators or co-collaborators or any other entity that's holding the rights to the content generating the royalties. So this means that you can't just issue an NFT. If you're signed to a label, they have to sign on to it. If there are other songwriters, for instance, they have to sign on as well. And the problem here is if you don't get everybody to sign on and there's some sort of legal battle, that could stop access to that royalty stream. So it might seem like a good thing, but in fact, the whole thing will fall apart unless everybody buys in. Not only that, anyone that's buying the NFT needs to know upfront just what they're actually getting. Many times you're not sure, am I getting the album, the music, the artwork, all of the above. So this has to be very, very clear up front. The second thing is that NFTs are subject to the same laws and regulations as stocks. The Securities and Exchange Commissioner, the SEC, has indicated that it's going to decide whether an NFT is a security on a case-by-case basis. So that means you can't just say, well, it worked for this particular entity. It's going to work for me too. No, SEC is going to decide. The third thing is an NFT has to be properly monitored because it can be manipulated by people that are involved in illegal activity like fraud and money laundering. And as a result, this means you as the issuer of the NFT can be subject to any kind of legal risks from all sorts of various laws. And that's without even being aware of what's happening. You're just thinking that you're selling it to someone or buying it, but in fact, you can get caught up in something really serious if you're not careful. Number four, you should always expect to pay some sort of income taxes on NFT sales. Now, this is a purchaser, it's a reseller, it's the issuer, Everybody is subject to taxes associated with capital gains and losses. Now, this becomes even more complicated because NFTs are purchased and sold using crypto, and that's subject to its own taxes as well. So both issuers and buyers have to understand that going in. And the fifth thing is, just because an artist is global, and just because you can sell something globally, 
it doesn't mean that the laws in the United States apply everywhere else. So what you'd have to do is go and figure out what the laws for NFTs are in every country if they're going to be issued there. This really makes it complicated. So just to be clear, I'm not an attorney. If you're going to do this, you should seek the advice of a specialist attorney, someone who really is well-versed in this, before you mint an NFT. It's really important because as you can see, there's a lot more involved than meets the eye. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now here's some good news. There's now a bill in front of Congress that's going to make all production costs for music fully deductible. The bipartisan Help Independent Tracks Succeed, or the HITS Act, is getting another chance. It failed to pass as part of the last two pandemic relief packages, but this is now in front of Congress for a third time. So hopefully by the time you hear this, it will have passed, and it will allow musicians and producers, engineers, record labels to deduct 100% of recording expenses up to $150,000 in the year they're incurred. They might think, well, wait, I'm already doing that. And if you are, you're not quite doing it right because under the current tax code, music creators are required to amortize their production expenses over what is considered the life of the recording. And that's usually between three and four years. So if the HITS Act passes, then basically you get exactly the same tax deductions as does film and television productions, which already enjoy a 100% first-year deduction. Like I said, this was first introduced in the House in July of 2020, and then was followed by a companion bill in the Senate in December 2020, and it failed to pass as part of the last two pandemic relief packages. This was reintroduced by the original House and Senate sponsors back in March, and we all have our fingers crossed that it's going to pass this time, because this is good for everybody. My guests this week are Eric Blicker and Glenn Schloss, founders of Flavor Lab, an award-winning audio production company that composes, records, mixes, and masters music and sound for the biggest brands in the world. Flavor Lab offers a complete set of audio solutions through its three divisions. Flavor Lab Score is dedicated to composing original music and scores. Flavor Lab Sound specializes in audio services for feature films, scripted and unscripted television, and commercials, trailers, and video games while Flavor Lab Toolbox offers an exclusive boutique music catalog with over 5,000 songs by 300 different composers. Flavor Lab's past projects include the original score, editing, and mix for the NBA official 2020 season restart announcement, the mix for documentary Do Not Split, the original score for HBO's documentary Wild Card, Death of a Radio Loudmouth, and the original score, music, and licensing, and mix for KSV's American Forest Foundation. The company has also composed a theme song for ABC's iconic talk show, The View, the recent Olympic spot for Polo Ralph Lauren, and the HBO series Vice utilizes their exclusive producer's toolbox and licensing service 
for their show music, among many others. During the interview, we spoke about the unique circumstances that brought about the formation of the company, why they prefer not to do commercials, tuning drums and percussion to the key of the song, how persistence led to getting tracks on ESPN, and much more. I spoke with Eric and Glenn via Zoom from the studio outside of New York City. Let's go back to the beginning. I want to hear from each of you guys what you're doing and, and what you're doing in the music business before you actually started Flavor Lab. So, Eric, let's start with you. Okay, sounds good. Well, let's see. Uh, I guess it all kind of started when I was like eight years old. My passion and love for music and recording. My father took me to the library when I was eight years old and we went to the record bin and he said, I think the Beatles are. I heard good things about them. I was eight years old. We got a Beatles record. We took it home. He showed me how to put it on to uh, the turntable and how to record it to a reel-to-reel and to record it to cassette. I mean, I'm that old that we recorded it to cassette. And it was like, you know, a limited amount of cassette tape because he couldn't afford the 60 minutes. Well, they didn't even have 60 minutes. I don't know. But so I had four Beatles songs recorded on there. And so that at eight years old sort of ignited my passion for music and recording. My father was... In, not a musician, but he just loved the sound of music and music was always playing in our house. And so I did that, which was um, sort of the very beginning. More things happened after that. Give me a thumbnail sketch here of what happened before Flavor Lab. Right. So then the next thumbnail sketch for me was uh, in high school, I started teaching at a music store for a guy who was Dwayne Allman's high school friend who had hung out with Dwayne Allman and he wound up uh, going through some crazy stuff and, and he said, hey, you want to buy this music store? So instead of going to music school, I wound up teaching a bunch of students and being an indentured servant for a year, giving him the money and then owning the uh, music store. And my father basically was also, my father was a laborer, but he was like, you know, you better get a contract. So I got a contract and I wound up having a music store, did that for five years, teaching, playing, learning about gear. And then I sold the music store and went to the University of Miami, studied studio engineering and jazz recording at the famed University of Miami. Did a lot of touring out of that and then moved to New York and uh, got my master's in theory and composition, studied with the great Jimmy Heath, big band arranging and a lot of orchestral counterpoint, a lot of composing uh, work in that world. And then I started, I had a friend who was working at HBO and I did my, my, my first gig was sort of a gospel promo for Black History Month. And I had been playing in like a club date band with a lot of African-American black singers who were super badass. Recorded a bunch of there. And that was sort of my entree into the film and television music world before everybody joined the film and television world, before the music business imploded. And, uh, and then I met Glenn on a club date gig where we were playing and we had a musical conversation without even looking at each other. It was like one of those, hurry up, we got to play the game. Everybody set up, set up, set up. Oh my God, we're late, of course. The guy who was running the club date was always kind of scattered brain. Plugged everything and started playing some funk tunes and we were just immediately communicating through music before we even saw each other. Mm-hmm. And then, and then uh, you know, then a- after we got to talking and was like, yeah, I'm doing music for TV and film and that's how we kind of hooked up. And then before, then we formed a company called G&E Music and then out of G&E Music grew Flavor Lab. Well, I want to find out more about Flavor Lab, but let's get to you, Glenn. Sure, Bobby. So where do I begin? Uh, you know, I'm the youngest of four kids. I grew up in New York, surrounded by tons and tons of music. My dad is a huge like Latin jazz music lover. So I, he re- they really, I have an older brother who was listening to all the, 
all the right things for me, all the right influences. Hendrix, uh, Zeppelin, Steely Dan, Earth, Wind and Fire. I was just getting spoon fed, you know, from a musical vocabulary. I, I felt uh, I was very lucky as a little boy. And uh, I am a drummer first and foremost. And I sort of got into this crazy business through my drumming. And so I grew up playing in a bunch of bands. I went to school up in Boston. I actually got a business degree up at Boston University, but I was lucky. Berkeley School of Music was down the block and, uh, you know, had a lot of relationships over at Berkeley. I would play at Harvard Square in the morning, get up really early in the morning and put out the, the hat and, and make some tips by the Harvard Square. And uh, I lived in Boston for a bunch of years, decided to come back to New York as my, our, my family was growing in New York. I was getting a little homesick. And I thought, what a great place to come back to New York, the entertainment capital of the world. And so, as Eric mentioned, I we happened to like a chance meeting at this club date band, this revolving club date band that I got asked to play on where I bumped into Eric somewhere up or down park Avenue in the city at one of those black tie events. And, you know, we just, like Eric mentioned, we locked a groove to some earth, wind and fire, some Aretha Franklin, and we never looked back and it's been 20 plus years and he's still been my partner. And uh, we've had some wild adventures in the music business together. Yeah. Boy, that's so cool. Because that is the ultimate partnership, isn't it? I mean, when you can play together on a cerebral level where it just works, it doesn't get any better. It's so yeah. true, Bobby. It, it, it definitely, it was, partnership was born out of like a love for the music and, and all the business stuff was so secondary. It was all about getting together and talking about creative stuff and how we're going to do something cool together. We just happened to get a lucky break at VH1 back in 97, friend of a friend sort of relationship that I walked our, back in the day, 97, I had a half inch cassette and uh, I had gotten the break to submit a reel. And I met Eric literally, was it like a week or two prior to getting that opportunity? And I and I called Eric up on the phone and I said, hey man, you seem like a really cool guy. Do you want to pretend that we're a company and we'll go over to VH1? And he said, yeah, you seem like a cool dude as well. <laughs> so I'll give you my two or three spots that I've done in the past. You put your spot on the reel and we'll pretend that we're this company. And so I went into VH1, met with the creative director. She put the half-inch cassette in, you know, sort of took it out of the machine, paused, and, I, and she looked at me, Bobby, and she said, I love your music. I want to hire you to do everything, all of the theme packaging for the show. And I, it was sort of like my movie moment. I looked around like, are you talking to me? I couldn't <laughs> believe it. Could not believe it. Ran out of the building to the nearest payphone. It was 97. And I called Erica. And I said, hey, man, we got a company. And he said, get out of here. You got to be kidding me. They went for it. And lo and behold, that was the start of g and &E Music and our partnership. And we ended up scoring, you know, up and down the dial on, at VH1. We did all the top 100 shows for them. We fostered a lot of great relationships with producers. We made a lot of fans over there. And then, you know, Viacom is an interesting breeding ground for a lot of producers that are, end up going to different interesting situations. So we ended up working at HBO. We did a movie for HBO you know, Showtime, all of the networks up and down the dial, we got a chance to really, to get our feet wet with. But that VH1 show was the first of, of a really cool journey. Okay, so it gets you into the business, and then at some point, Flavor Lab comes up, and I get the feeling that you've been doing this for a while, and then it's like, well, there's a bigger vision here. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Well, we had uh, a very interesting thing, because we had a music company on 23rd Street in Manhattan, so we had a lot of strong relationship with NYU and the internship programs from NYU. So there was a lot of strong people that came out of NYU. But another internship was sort of 
through a friend who worked at HBO, sent us uh, his brother-in-law. And his brother-in-law is Brian Quill, who became our light, you know, our business partner for over 20 years. He has just incredible ears. He's an amazing mixer, audio post-production mixer, one of the best in the business. And, you know, he started out as, you know, just doing live sound for Glenn's band and was an intern. And then eventually, as we were doing more and more music for television shows, Discovery Channel and stuff, there was a lot of sound design components that kind of came in. And then they started saying, hey, can you mix this promo or can you mix the show up? And so we started doing audio post-production. And he really had a lot of love for that. He grew up like watching a lot of TV and playing a lot of video games. So he's super fast in Pro Tools and he knows how to tell stories with audio. And Brian Quill is, you know, he's also our, our third lifelong partner that we've had for a while. And so he runs the audio post-production business. So it was Genie Music at the time. And Genie Music didn't really work for all of the offerings that we had, which was, and it wasn't as strong as a, a, a name as Flavor Lab. So, so Flavor Lab does our original composing and scoring that Glenn and I run. And we have a lot of composers that we work with. And then we have a music licensing division, which is a whole other story that kind of came in a little bit after we just wanted to write music we didn't want to be music librarians really <laughs> but then the business sort of forced us into that and then our audio post prediction uh post-production business which is flavor lab sound that brian quill pretty much heads up and, but we do a lot of clients kind of pick and choose from all three or not all three but it's sort of a it's an interesting thing to have because we can tell the whole story with audio. i can see why the library would make sense for you because probably have a a lot of music that could go in there plus let's face it people don't want to pay for custom music all the time or they can't afford it they don't have the budget so it makes sense yeah and it's very it's sort of interesting how the business kind of evolved in that and it also is kind of you know it's sort of like was a shifting thing of where the to, to have an original sound for a brand or for a for a show is a really valuable asset but if it's something that's just quick easy stuff to do people don't care because it's just a mood right and so like pre-canned or pre-library music you can get a mood out of that really quickly you know like we just licensed a piece of music for a broadway play about a blues thing and it was like just some slide do- dobro that i had that i ha- that i had done and they licensed the music and it was just in the music catalog but it's got that feel like you're sitting on the back porch with a dobro and it feels bluesy and it's just a feel. So some people don't need that custom thing and it's gotten more and more. This production is just so fast and it's really like people searching for that. And I think that that's going to evolve into a whole big AI type kind of situation too. Oh, I'd love to go there. I've been exposed to some AI writing tools and some drawing and graphics tools and they're blowing my mind. But that being said, how do you come up with the keywords for what you're doing? Because that is the real key to library music for people to find the right thing. So what's the strategy behind that? Yeah, we have like a whole metadata system and we've spent a lot of time refining that system, working on that system. And we have Kyle Guffey is, is a woman that works for us. and She's sort of in charge of that stuff. So like I said, like I never really wanted to be a librarian, but I did hire a bunch of people who were like data people to come in and sort of take a look at that and refine that. And it's really like data science and, and AI stuff that's going to make that the most valuable, right? And so you're always finding pieces. Like we just spoke to a music supervisor for CBS network and he's just like, 
you know, I always find it valuable to look for era. And it's like, era, oh, you mean like, yeah, you know, like 1960s. Like, I'll put in 1960s. Like, you know, that's a certain feel. 70s. So it's like, oh, well, we better add that to our 10,000 tracks. You know? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Who's going to go through and add era to 10,000 tracks when, you know, a thousand of them are, you know, tension, ambient tension cues. There's no era involved there. When you're doing custom music, what's the turnaround time generally? Yeah, you know, it really is, it, it varies depending on when the deadline and the schedule is for the client. So, like, we've, we scored a film for HBO called um, Wild Card, The Downfall of a Radio Loudmouth. We did that through the pandemic, and it was supposed to be done within, like, three to four months. But because of that, it stretched out. And it was actually cool because it gave us a lot of time to explore the sound of the film. And so that was a little bit more, but it's really kind of depends on the project because we've done just all kinds of stuff commissioned for like, we do like theme songs for television shows and then movie scores, but then we'll also do like little PSA announcement things. Or right now we're working on a, like a mini documentary for Mutual of America that highlights a community partnership award, an organization that helps somebody in the community. So the turnaround times is like, whenever the deadline is back it out and usually give yourself a little bit more because the deadline's going to come quicker than you think. Well, you just mentioned a number of different areas that you score for. What's the most difficult? What's the one that, that you go, Oh, I'd rather not do that. I don't think there's any, I wouldn't want to score for because I think when you, when we're scoring and writing and we're doing music because we've done so many different styles of music, it's just so exciting and intriguing to be able to try and find something new to get better at. So it's like everything you do is a learning experience, whether you're getting your Pro Tools template like faster or bigger or customized for whatever it is. Like we just wrote a bunch of tracks for uh, CBS Sports, like for the NFL and for the PGA. And we do, Glenn and I, we've written a lot of stuff for ESPN. They still do our, like for the Sports Center, all of the baseball music. And it's just like, rock tunes, rock tunes. Like we've been writing these rock, like high energetic highlight sports rock tracks for 20 odd years. And they're still using them and we're still writing them. And I'm still finding production techniques that I can learn from that make things bigger and better. Like, you know, I've always like doubled and tripled guitars, but just like, you know, trying different combinations of guitars and amps and doubling and tripling and seeing how that makes the space bigger. And there's just like all kinds of production techniques. So I would say the answer is I don't really dread any production or writing if it, I'm going to learn from it. It's always an exploration when you write for music. You're always kind of learning. I have a friend that's been very successful writing for, I think he's on 20-some series all over the world. And he claims that he's a really good mixer as well. And, and he claims that one of the reasons why people choose his music is because it's louder than everybody else. So he maxes it out. Do you find that that makes a difference? I think it used to make a difference before the Comac and the LKFS stuff. And you go back in time and listen to our stuff, and it's, it's, we were slamming the hell out of it with L2s and Wade's plug-in. And I think not so much. I think dynamics and feel and emotion now are going to trump that. Okay. Just curious. He He is so adamant about that. 
Still, yeah, yeah, and he's very successful too at what he does. So it's like, well, I, I guess I can't doubt it. But I've talked to other people that do what you do, and you know, they're like, oh no, I don't have to do that. So teach his own. Maybe he's also got some good emotional hooks that people are tying into whatever he's writing. You know, what would you prefer to do? Would you rather score a movie, or would you rather do a television show, or what? Bobby, I'd say uh, just. It, it depends on who, who we're working with. I mean, we've done a little bit of everything at this point, and I think it's the people that we're working with uh, that, that help inspire us and get to get creative with. So that's what we get jazzed up about. Um, Eric was mentioning this Mutual of America piece. We work with Jet, this, this guy, Jeff Schwartz, every year on this piece, and it's such a feel-good piece, and Jeff is such a pleasure to work with that for, for me, and I guess, Eric, you could certainly answer that as this question as well. But for me, I get jazzed up about the people that we're working with. So I, I don't, I'm not as concerned about whether it's a film or a TV show or a theme song. It's the people that we're vibing with, that we're communicating with, that are, you know, encouraging us and, and that we're being collaborators with. Um, obviously, if you're working on a film and you're not enthusiastic about the people that you're working with, it's, it's, it's much more difficult because the time frame is so much more, is bigger, you know? So um, I think the answer to that question is my first thought is who are we working with and are they, you know, fun, exciting people to work with that we want to do some great things with. That would be my first, my first thought about that. And also, also wanted to say just on, on the last question, also, as far as the genres and stuff, something that I, I'm really get, getting excited about, Bobby, is, you know, there, there are oftentimes we did a Latin thing recently and Eric and I brought in a bunch of heavyweights. Uh, from the Latin community up in um, in Manhattan, and we were more producing on the side as much as you know. We generally play all the instruments, but I get such a kick out of just producing and stepping back and having some other percussionists coming coming in to help you know accentuate the, the parts, and uh, that's always a thrill. So it's it's uh, it's not that intimidating to take on other genres when you know you've got a rolodex of the greatest badasses in New York City and. LA and everywhere in between. So we've started to do a lot of those projects as well, where we're just producing and bringing other folks in to collaborate with us. So that's really exciting. Do you find it easier than composing yourself? I mean, just looking at a project as a whole. Well, I think, I think it's, you know, I, as always, you, you got to have a vision going into the project. You have to be a, an incredible communicator as to where point B is and then sort of reverse engineer it and keep everybody honest in the room. Obviously, everybody's A-level players but it's super important if we're, if we're the go-between between the, the main producer who's got the vision and they're communicating to us that we communicate it to the players that we are playing with. So Eric is like steadfast about if, if, a, if, a, if a conga player came in, he wants that conga tuned to like, you know, D, E, F minor, whatever it is, it is like to the, to the T. It's, everything has got to be absolutely in key. And it's fantastic. It's hilarious working with Eric because he's never shy about, you know, when it comes to tune, obviously everything's got to be tuned, right? But, you know, dealing with these, these players that come in and just having that kind of, um, you know, back and forth and not being, not being intimidated, not being afraid to really have that, commu- that open two-way communication. I mean, that's the way Eric and I are. We are completely honest with each other, um, whether we love something or we dislike something that we're doing. We have no problem sharing that with each other. I think that's one of the reasons we're so successful and that we've been together for 20 plus years. We can't hide anything from each other. If he doesn't like something I'm playing, he's the first one to just stop recording and be like, dude, 
what's going on here. And I'll do it to him. And I think it makes the, I think it makes our production. It elevates everything that we do because we're just super honest about everything we do in, in, in creatively and business wise. We, we just have that kind of relationship and we have that with Brian as well, our third partner, which I, which I think is why we've been together for, for 20 plus years. You mentioned about tuning the congas to the key of the song. Do you do that with the drums as well? Oh, absolutely. For, for rock absolutely. Yeah. He, yeah, he won't let me play a lick unless every every rack tom is tuned to the note of the, uh, you know, in, in the key of the song, for sure. It's funny, I got a Roland V drum kit a couple of years back and it sort of allowed me to cheat a little bit because you can tune stuff up fairly quickly with the, with the module. But there's nothing like playing real drums and getting in a room. You know, we did a lot of ESPN tracks with the with the V drums. With I think it was it a real snare drum. Yeah, like snare cymbals and real snare and cymbals with a V drum, kick drum, and a, and a real hi hat and V toms. So we've tried all these different hybrid connections and and uh, and and it's been really fun to to try the different hybrid collections. But Eric, yeah, is he he, he keeps me honest with all of the drumming when it comes to tuning can't put anything by him it's got it's absolutely got to be in the right key to play before we press record on anything there's two schools of thought on that one is you should do that because it works better at the song and the other is well not necessarily i've done it both ways myself what's your thought it's worked both ways i've had more trouble tuning it to the track to be honest with you making it work could have been the drummer well that's usually the thing i think if you boil it down to what someone other than us who have the ears to produce the music it's sort of like does it feel right does it feel good and and really like i think that that's sort of an analogy for the business too you know we're like does it feel good and we're doing the right thing you know and, and i think that comes through regardless of the tuning of the drums does it feel good but if it feels good and the drums are tuned and things are ringing and it's not crushing the drum because i you know drums only have a range of good notes that you can have based upon the physics of the shell. So you've only got two or three notes and there's an absolute sweet spot somewhere that might not be exactly in the, in tune with, with where you're at. It could be a half step off or whatever, but you can still move it. It's not going to make the drum ring, you know, out like the best that it can sound the drum. But you know, if you're hitting a floor tom, that's a half step off of where your bass note is and you got to do boom, 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 boom. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to sound good. And it ain't going to feel good no matter how good you play it. Yeah, yeah. Even yeah. Bernard Purdy is playing it. Here's a question. So what was the worst gig you've ever had to do, but you don't have to name any names, just the situation? Is that live or in the studio or both? Is it an Bo- open Both. I mean, you've worked so long together that I- I'm just curious if you have the same feel on this, the same thoughts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say in, in the 90s, we worked for a couple of ad agencies where there was like a lot of people involved that didn't know a lot about music and or feel, you know, who thought they knew a lot about music. And so they added advertising agencies in the nineties. We had a little stint where we did some things. There was, there's this great music ad music supervisor, this guy, Joshua Benowitz. I don't know if you know him or not, but I asked him one time at lunch, I said, dude, what is the story with this advertising music? Why is it so crazy and challenging and all these he said, basically, it's like you're the chef in the kitchen making soup and there's 20 people pissing in the soup at the same time. That's what working on advertising music is. And I said, okay, so we don't really do too much of that. I had the same experience. 
doing something and there's seven suits behind you and they each have an idea of what should be happening all of them wrong right no you do the political thing and then you call next time to do a gig and you say i'm busy what's the project that you had the most fun on i would say one of them was the pbs pbs kids band we actually put a band together bobby that was like we called it the pbs kids band and we had a wonderful creative director at PBS, Michael Kennedy, Matthew Kennedy. Ma- Matthew Kennedy, forgive me, Matthew Kennedy, who really knows his music. And he would really push us. We had this musical conversation with Matthew for many, many years. We've done a lot of gigs together. And he let us put together a band where it was like all the drums were, were washboards and everything but actual drums. You know, I was creating on this, uh, you know, making up this kit. And we brought in who was on Ben Stivers was on piano, who's played with Sting and Lyle Lovett, and um, brought in uh, an amazing sax player. And uh, who else did we bring in? We just had that like was it. A, that was it. Was, it was that a was trio, a quartet. quartet. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, and we just had fun with the PBS interstitial, you know, you know, and we would do all these different styles and. Those kinds of gigs are just, you never forget them, you know, and everybody's on board with it and the wackier, the better. And, and that was, had a big smile thinking about that, you know, those times. And that was incredibly creative too, because it was one of those things also where there's a creative director who's in charge, who is not necessarily, there's, there are people who know about music and maybe have played a little bit they haven't you know dug as deep as we have as composers but they have an idea of what feels good and they they have an idea like a lot of the people that we work with they're real appreciators of music and they want to be involved and feel like they're part of the production process he is another creative director that we've worked with that has like incredible vision where he's just like what if we put together this crazy wacky band where the the baritone sax or the or the baritone clarinet is the bass player and there's this wacky percussion and the organ keys are playing the guitar part and the guitar parts playing the horn part. And like, we just mix it all up and just make this crazy thing. And so we were able to just play and write a lot, a lot of material for, for these PBS kids things. And it was fun because it was not specifically commercial. It was like, but it branded the whole sort of station with this kind of goofy band that was sort of his, in his mind that we were able to realize with these other two incredible players after we wrote a lot of stuff where it was like, what if Prince was doing like a uh, <laughs> what was what was the name of the guy with like the wacky the wacky electronic guy? He, he like basically invented electronic music. I can't, I can't remember his name right now. It's like that kind of stuff where it was just like mortgage board creative. It was it was super. You guys have been doing this for a long time. How has the business changed from when you started to the way it is now? Wow! Yeah, major. Like all, like all business. Uh, when we when we started our company, we were the first company in New York, music company, to have a website because I, I had been going to school at the Aaron Copeland School of Music in Queens, and so they had like Next computers and Mozilla like webs. So I was like, I was on the forefront of that. And as I was hustling, I was also like freelancing for companies working with computers and stuff like that. So I had like a jump on the technology. So. I think that that, you know, that obviously the create, the jump on technology with creativity, and putting those together 
I don't think that will ever sort of change like within the industry like itself for people that have the technology and the creativity and the efficiency and will to put that together. So when we started, we kind of had that on the, on the forefront. We were getting calls from all over the world, like Nokia and all this crazy stuff. And, you know, the, as we got older, I would say the playing field of technology has evolved and changed dramatically. You know, I mean, like just take a look at a car, for instance, from two years ago compared to now. The technology is just amazing. So I would say that has changed tremendously and the access to music. Like when we started, it was like whatever the production music library stuff or we're delivering, you know, vinyl and we were sending out CDs and stuff to people and all that kind of crazy stuff. And now it's just like the sea of music that's available and it's instantaneous for everyone. You know, the challenge is going through and cutting through all that, finding what the raw emotional component of what, whatever it is you're creating is like, what is the sound of this? Mm-hmm. What is the sound of this? So that's, that hasn't changed. What is the sound of it? It's just the way that it's delivered is definitely changed. Huge. Okay, last question. Since you've been in business for a long time, what is the best piece of business advice that someone imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? Glenn, let's start with you. Well, Bobby, that's a great question. And the best piece of business advice is I, you know, trust, trust your partners, trust the people you're going to do business with. I would say I've been in business with this guy for over 20 years and I trust him to take a bullet for this guy. You know, I think if your heart isn't into it, then just don't take another step forward. Like if, you know, and that's not thinking from your head, it's thinking from your heart and people might disagree with that. I'm a heart kind of guy. I would say, trust your heart before you make any move. Um, and think about your big picture vision as to where you want to be. And again, surrounding yourself with the right people, surround yourself with the right business partners. Cause I can't tell you how many, how many partnerships implode every, every day. And especially after 20 years of being in the business, like there's so many great companies that we've seen come and go. You gotta, you gotta trust your gut and trust the people that, uh, that you're in business with. Otherwise, what do you have to, to, to move forward with? Not much. You gotta make sure that foundation is, is a rock solid foundation. And it's funny, Eric and I talk about it sometimes. I think one of the things that Eric and I really have in common is that we both had super strong family roots. And we talk about that, you know, the nucleus of the, like growing up and, you know, how, wh- what was it like growing up with your family? Did you have a, you have a strong family? We, we both had a strong family bond. And I think we do bond on that and it's kept us together. It's sort of on a subconscious level all these years. Eric, how about you? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, from a business perspective, the reality is is that, you know, you have to make a living, right? You have to feed your family. You have to take care of take care of the people and you take care of your family. And so I would say the best piece of business advice for someone, and it kind of goes across all business, all ages, is, is to have persistence without being a pain in the ass, right? So like that, it's very easy to give up. A lot easier to give up than it is to have persistence and i would just say like when we started out i really wanted to write tracks for espn's sports center so i would call i knew the music supervisors i would call them once a month this is when it was calling you know what i mean i would call them on the phone once and they'd be like you again i'm like hey man we can really write rock tracks for you okay goodbye and i called them for three years once a month until finally he said okay i got okay i got i got something for you man like why don't you write me a rock album for this baseball thing 
and that then that really sort of you know worked out and also like matthew kennedy with that pbs kids like we used to call him all the time and hey matthew what's you know and then we wound up scoring a film for hbl when we were in town someone brought us into matthew kennedy's office a friend of glenn's and he was like oh you guys just scored that movie that but that persistence and then led to a, a slew of really a lot of fun pbs kids gigs working with creativity so my answer would be you know persistence and form relationships and continue at it without you know without being a pain in the ass and it, it's kind of tough you know i would say now too right with everything like virtual to try and get those relationships and those connections happening you know what i mean but if you just keep trying eventually we'll all be hanging out you can find out more about eric and glenn and flavor lab at flavorlab.com that's flavor lab l-a-b flavorlab.com Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.